Um, I think it's quite appropriate because not knowing what the weather would be like, I decided that I would talk to you tonight about storms. So it seems like it's quite relevant tonight. Um, but it's great to be back with you here in Belly Halbert. Thank you for having me. And it's great to be able to share with God, in God's word with you again. Now, I want to think tonight about a story that is found in Matthew in chapter 14. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there now. We're going to read shortly in Matthew chapter 14. Now, one of the things I want to think about in this story tonight is how Jesus confronts our fears, especially when things seem out of control. I wonder how much you feel as if your life is really under control at the moment. Maybe you're the kind of person who needs to feel like you have control of everything in your life, or maybe not, and it might depend on what kind of period you're going through in your life at the moment. Maybe everything seems fine, or maybe you feel as though things are slipping through your fingers. I remember a few years ago, I heard a statistic that when you compare how much control we think we have of our lives with how much control we actually have, we only have about 15% of the control over our lives that we think we do, about 15%. And that doesn't really change much, but we can feel different about that at different times. Now, now Ruth and I are in the process of moving house at the moment. So one thing I've had to think a lot about recently is insurance. <laughs> and um, and insurance is a good thing, right? It's something you have to have often in order to keep the law. You need to insure your house, you need to insure your car. But it's also an interesting thing because I don't know if you've noticed this, but when you watch, if you were to watch an advert for insurance, often what people are really selling you is like peace of mind, okay? They're kind of selling you this idea that if you pay them a little bit of money each month, then basically you will have less to worry about. You won't need to worry about these things that are outside your control. You can leave that to them. You can leave that to the insurance company. In a way, they're selling you peace of mind. That's what they're trying to offer you. They're trying to offer you this, this idea of peace in view of the fact that we actually don't have the control over our lives that we think we do. There's so many things in our lives, so many changes that we would have no control of. Now, in this story in Matthew, we're going to see how Jesus confronts this lack of control we have in our lives. Um, a really important theme throughout Matthew's gospel, really, is this idea of Jesus like confronting people and them having to make a decision about him. And he'll often act in quite unexpected ways. And maybe even if you're a Christian tonight, Jesus can still surprise us sometimes as well. We can have a concept of who Jesus is that doesn't really make sense whenever we are confronted with the realities of life. We can have ideas about Jesus that fall apart whenever we're forced to face our lack of control and the unpredictable nature of the world around us. And sometimes Jesus will even act in ways that seem to make our fears worse. But there's something he wants to show us, I think, through this, just as he wants to show his disciples in this story. So let's read in Matthew 14, and I want to start at verse 22. Um, I'll explain a little more about this shortly, but the backdrop to this story is that Jesus has just fed the 5,000. So that has just happened, and we're going to break in in Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat, that's Jesus made the disciples get into the boat, and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, that's roughly just before dawn, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. 
and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they, that's Jesus and Peter, got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. That's all we're going to read. Now, this, this chapter and this story kind of fall right in the middle of Matthew's gospel. And I think that's intentional because I actually think this is a really important story for the point that Matthew's trying to make throughout his gospel. Now, just before, um, to add a bit of context, I guess, to what we just read, at this point in the story of Matthew's gospel, Jesus has become quite established as a teacher. He's performed miracles, and he has begun to, like, divide opinion. He's provoked strong reactions. Some people love him and are willing to follow him to the ends of the earth, and some other people hate him and are trying to undermine him and get rid of him. And at the start of this chapter, we, we had the story of the imprisonment and death of John the Baptist. Um, which you find there because it sort of ties into this question of who Jesus is. We're told that story because Herod is wondering, as he hears about these miracles that Jesus is performing, and he thinks firstly that it's John the Baptist risen from the dead. Now after that story, Jesus tries to go off on his own to mourn the death of John the Baptist, but he's interrupted by these crowds. And he feeds them miraculously with bread and fish, which leads into the start of our story tonight. Now, where we began to read, to read uh, Jesus sends his disciples across the sea in a boat, and he goes up a mountain by himself to pray, um, probably because he didn't get the chance to do this before when the crowds came to him. It's already late in the day, and Jesus continues to pray until well into the night, by which time the disciples are out on their own in the middle of the sea, being rocked by the waves in the middle of a storm. Just before dawn, uh, at the darkest part of the night, Jesus goes out to meet them, walking on the water towards the boat. So to recap, it's dark, it's very windy and noisy. The disciples have been fighting the wind on the boat all night, and even when some of them are experienced fishermen, they're helpless. And now in their time of need, they look out onto the water and seeing a figure floating just above the surface, within their like, frame of reference, the only conclusion they can come to is that there's some kind of ghostly spirit that is approaching them. It's understandable that they would be scared out of their minds, even if you found someone who claimed to not believe in ghosts and things like that. If you were to put them in this situation, they would probably react in exactly the same way. But then this ghost speaks to them. He doesn't say the name Jesus, but he obviously expects them to recognize his voice and to recognize him as their friend and their teacher. He tells them not to be afraid. Peter isn't sure, and so he asks the ghost to call him onto the water, which he does. Peter walks on the water toward the figure of Jesus, doing something he could never have dreamed possible a few years earlier. Is this really happening? Am I walking on water right now? But then some other realities start to dawn on him as he looks around and he sees the wind continuing to whip the water around him, and his faith in this figure starts to fail. He feels himself sinking into the sea, knowing that he has no chance if he's caught out at sea in this weather. And he does the only thing he can think to do. He cries out to the ghost to save him. Jesus reaches out his hand and grabs him. He questions his lack of faith, but this idea, oh, you have little faith, that's only one word in the original language. 
And I think it's almost as if he's using a kind of nickname for Peter. It's like, oh, little faith, oh, daughter. They both move back toward the boat and climb in, and at that point, the wind immediately stops. Everyone in the boat is amazed and worships him. Literally, they bow down before him, and they acknowledge him to be the Son of God. The question of who this person is that was asked at the start of the chapter has come full circle. Uh, Jesus is the Son of God. He must be, if this is what he has done. Now, what we need to see in this story, I think, is that this is an example of Jesus' disciples finding themselves unexpectedly in a situation that they cannot control and that they have no obvious way out of. Many of these men were hardened fishermen. They had been out on the sea many times, but they could still do nothing against this wind. Even in a familiar place, things were spiraling out of control. I wonder how important it is to you to have a sense of control in your life, to feel as though you know what's happening and you're on top of everything. Maybe this is something that affects your work. Maybe you feel like you have to know what everyone is doing around you at all times. Or maybe it shows up in your life with family and friends. Maybe you think that things would go better if people just followed your advice if they did what you told them to. Um, I remember reading an article a few years ago which talked about control as something that can be like a kind of priority in our lives, a kind of ideal, even an idol. And the article was talking about what this might look like, and it said that to have control as a kind of all-important priority in our lives might just look like wanting to be very disciplined or to have like a very rigorous structure in our lives, wanting certainty about everything, or wanting every aspect of our lives to meet high standards. Now, it's obviously a good thing to aim at, to have a degree of control and order to our lives, but we can make that too important. When control becomes too much of a priority for us, uncertainty becomes impossible to deal with. It becomes impossible to cope with not knowing what's happening or what different people are doing. It becomes impossible to give people around us independence and freedom. We might end up even trying to control the lives of others. We can find ourselves trapped in these cycles of fear and anxiety as we try to get a handle on every aspect of our lives, often having to like, ignore the fact that that's practically impossible. Remember, we only have about 15% of the control over our lives that we think we do. And sometimes the more we try to control our lives, the more we realize that we actually can't. And then that makes us worry more, which can lead to even greater anxiety and fear. We can find ourselves always asking, what if, what if this or that happens? We try to have an answer for every problem that might come up. Again, a degree of order and control in your life is a good thing, but this can become too important. So what's going on in this story in Matthew? Now, the idea of being out on a boat in a storm is not very familiar to me. Maybe because you live near the sea, it's easier for you to imagine, but I was trying to think of a comparable situation. And I was thinking about what this might look like if you were on a plane. So imagine that you are flying off for your summer holidays and you're on an easy jet flight. And at the start, you're told that your captain has been flying for 30 years, he's very experienced, and you'll have no problem arriving safely at your destination. But 30 minutes after takeoff, you're told to put your seatbelt on because you're experiencing turbulence. And this goes on for some time and seems to keep getting worse and worse. As you fly around in darkness outside with rain and thunder, with the plane rocking side to side more and more, eventually the captain comes out and says that this is actually the worst storm he has ever seen, and he can offer you no guarantees that the plane will make it through. He just tells you to hang on tight and hope for the best. Now you're located in a window seat, 
And as panic starts to set in, you look out the window toward the wing and you see a ghost hovering outside just next to the wing. You don't believe in ghosts, so you rub your eyes and you look again, but the ghost is still there and seems to be moving closer. Now, that probably doesn't seem like it makes this situation any better, does it? In fact, it probably makes it 10 times worse. Not only do we have a storm to deal with, but now we've got the supernatural to contend with as well. But that's a little bit like Jesus' method of approaching his disciples here in their time of crisis. So why does he do this? Why doesn't he just speak and calm the storm from the mountain like he did back in chapter 8? Jesus seems to act in a way here that makes their fear even worse before he eases it. Why does he do that? I think it's partly because he doesn't want them to have a false sense of security. He doesn't want to just come to them and encourage them to fight through the storm, telling them that you know, he believes in them and they can make it. They are well out of their depth here, and Jesus needs them to see that. And he also wants to show them that, in a sense, they're out of their depth when it comes to him as well. Not only are the circumstances out of control, they also can't control him. They also can't control the man on the water. He is not just a genie in a lamp that they can summon to do what they want when they want it. Now, it's possible, as I said at the start, to have a kind of image of Jesus in our minds as someone who maybe fulfills a role in our lives. But once life becomes difficult or doesn't go the way we plan, Jesus doesn't seem very useful to us. Uh, maybe we even start to feel as if he's let us down. When he doesn't give us what we want, we start to lose confidence in him. And this often happens at, at times in our lives when we start to see how little control we actually have over our circumstances. It's possible to live our lives with an illusion that we're on top of everything, that we have everything covered, and then to have that illusion shattered. And that might leave us with the sense that our image of Jesus has been shattered too. We don't know how to relate to him anymore. We move from feeling like we don't really need him to feeling like he isn't really of much use to us after all. Now what Jesus says in this chapter in response to the disciples' fear is really, really important. And we find it in verse 27. Now in the ESV, which I'm reading from, it reads, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now that is what, what the original language means, but we lose something here. Because Jesus doesn't literally say, it is I. He literally says, I am. Now, that's the normal way in Greek of saying it's me. The same thing happens in Spanish, for example. If you want to say it's me, you say, I am. But in Matthew's context, I think he's telling us more here by using those words. Um, you might already know this, but in the Old Testament, God has a name, which is sometimes written as Jehovah or Yahweh. And God's name is closely linked to his statement to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, because Moses asks God's name there, and he responds, I am that I am. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, anytime you find the Lord written in capitals in your Bible, that's the name that's there. It's that name, Yahweh. And it represents God's name, I am. Jesus is making an identity statement here. His response to the disciples' fear is just that, I am. So why is that helpful here? As the disciples are starting to realize their own lack of control over their circumstances, their helplessness, Jesus wants them to see simultaneously that he is not who they thought he was. The God we think we need often reflects the world we think we live in. Okay? The God we think we need often reflects the world we think we live in. If we think our greatest need is just to have more control over our lives, then we will probably assume that we need a God who will give us that control. 
But if we start to see that the world is not, nor ever has been, nor ever will be under our control, then we start to see the need for a God who is big enough and stable enough to stand over all of the mess and all of the torment in the world without ever changing in himself. We need a God who does not change according to our whims and our desires. We need a God who is not defined by what we think about him, by who we think he should be. The world is outside our control, but so is God, and that is good news. He is. He is the way he is. Jesus is the only one who can define himself, and that's very good news because it also means that in all the change and all the tumult of earth, he is still the same. Jesus is making a claim here to be God. He's using that name, and this is very good news for us. Sometimes when we begin to realize that Jesus is not the way we thought he was, we can act the way Peter does in this chapter. We can look around and we can become enveloped in uncertainties and doubts. Who Jesus is and what he can do become shrouded in darkness. But the great news in the middle of our own doubts and struggles is that Jesus is never changed by any of that. He is still the same every day. Only he can define himself. And as he is, he never changes. He just is. Always there, always the same, no matter our circumstances. If it is frightening that we can't control the world, it is great news that we cannot control God. So this is who Jesus is, but can we trust him? He is who he is, he is the I am, but is that really good news? How can who he is really help us when we find ourselves in situations in life that we can't control? Now, there's a few different ways to answer this question, but first I want to show you that this story in the middle of Matthew has a lot of echoes in a story that's at the very end of Matthew's gospel. Now, as Matthew kind of builds his story about Jesus, there's this kind of escalation in the story. Um, some people love Jesus more and more, others hate him more and more, and eventually this builds to kind of the climax of Matthew's story where the religious authorities condemn Jesus to death and basically coerce the Romans into crucifying him. Now, the story of the crucifixion is a long story in Matthew's gospel. It takes two full chapters, and they're some of the longest chapters in Matthew. And near the end of this story, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, having been rejected and mocked by everybody, something strange happens. From Matthew 27, verse 45, we're told that in the middle of the day, um, a supernatural kind of darkness covers the land for three hours. And at the end of this time, Jesus cries out that he has been forsaken by God. And shortly afterwards, we read this in Matthew 27, verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now, the word there for cry out is more this idea of a kind of shriek, almost. And it's the same exact word that we find in Matthew 14, verse 26, where we read before that the disciples cried out in fear when they thought Jesus was a ghost. And in a similar way, you know, the disciples in chapter 14 end up recognizing that Jesus is truly the Son of God. And later on in chapter 27, the, that episode ends the exact same way. The Roman soldiers standing around the cross say the same thing. Truly, this was the Son of God. So what's going on here? Why are there, why are there these parallels? In Matthew's gospel, we're presented at the start with a problem, which Jesus is the solution to. God's people are in exile. They're stuck away from home, and Jesus has come to save them from that. But this isn't just an idea of needing to get rid of the Roman government. 
Matthew again and again presents the basic human problem as being a kind of alienation. The whole world exists in a kind of estrangement from God. And this shows up in things like sickness, isolation, and storms. And throughout Matthew, Jesus goes about fixing these things. This is his mission. He has come to be God with us, to come to human beings to fix this problem of estrangement that exists between them and God. In the Bible's imagery, every problem that you and I face in life, everything we most deeply fear, is a symptom of a larger problem of existing in this kind of state of alienation, of distance from God. Our attempts to control our lives so that we never have to face our fears are all attempts to wrestle with this problem. With God, there is life, health, and freedom. Away from him, there is sickness, death, and storms. But Jesus has come to set this right. In our story, Jesus steps into the storm and the darkness as the I am, come to be our stability in an unstable world. But at the end of the gospel, he goes even further. He goes into deeper darkness. He is utterly forsaken and abandoned by God, even more than humans are in their normal state. He goes into the deepest depths of abandonment. Why? In a sense, I think, to face all of our fears. All of the things that we so fear that we try to avoid, Jesus faced on our behalf. Everything that we spend our lives running from, pain, death, rejection by others, rejection by God, utter loss of everything he had, loss of his dignity, utter abandonment, utter aloneness and lostness, utter agony, torment, and loss of any sense of control or peace. All that we spend our lives running from, all that we experience as a sign of our alienation from God, Jesus swallowed in our place. In order for God to be fully with us once more, in order that he could say at the end of the gospel, I am with you always. In Matthew 14, the disciples cry out in fear in the darkness. In Matthew 27, Jesus cries out in the darkness, lost so that we could be found and brought back to God. And this is the heart of why we can trust him. He really did face our fears. He bore our grief. He carried our pain and our sorrow. I don't know how you feel about Jesus, whether you feel some sense of doubt or unease with Jesus or with God. So I want to give you a couple more good reasons to trust Jesus and to come to him, just as I close. Now, in the story we read, uh, we're told three times that Jesus does things immediately. In verses 22, 27, and 31. And I think uh, we're told this really to show us what Jesus is like, by what his impulses are, the things he's drawn to instinctively, his, his reflexes, if you like. Now, the first thing is that there is his father. He's drawn to God in prayer. It's probably a demonstration of who he is as the son of God. But I want to focus on the second two things. Because in verses 27 and 31, Jesus is drawn to people who on the one hand are fearful, Whenever the disciples cry out, we're told that Jesus immediately tells them not to fear. And secondly, in verse 31, to people who are doubtful and falling. Whenever Peter falls, we're told that Jesus immediately reaches out and grabs him. Maybe that's the way you feel right now. Maybe you are fearful, or maybe you are doubtful and feel as if you are falling. If that's true, you should know that you are just the kind of person that Jesus is drawn to. He loves to move toward unsure, unstable people, to take hold of them, to show them who he is, and to say, do not be afraid. 
If you will have him, he will do the same for you, coming to you in your fears and doubts and taking hold of you as he did for Peter. The message of Matthew is that Jesus has come to save the world. And Matthew repeatedly presents Jesus as someone who divides people. The message of Matthew, in a sense, is this is Jesus. What do you think of him? The gospel is a person here. It's all about Jesus and how we respond to him. He is God with us. Come to end our alienation and to bring us back to God. He is the I am, the one we can't control, the one sometimes we don't understand, and maybe even the one we fear. But he is the one we need. And the one who, because of who he is and what he has done, can provide stability in a world that we cannot control. The imagery of the sea in the Bible often represents this idea of like chaos and darkness, something unknown and uncontrollable. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus controlling the sea in Matthew is such a big deal. He brings control to a world in darkness and chaos. Often in our lives, the wind and the waves can seem much bigger and much more real than the man standing on the water. But he invites us here to see who he really is, God with us, to focus on that and to allow that to be our peace, to let the God we can't control be our security in a world that we can't control. In the middle of the storms of life, when we are afraid and feel our lack of control, Jesus' words to us are the very same as what he says to the disciples. Take heart, I am, do not be afraid. He is drawn to the fearful, to the falling. If you will have him, he will take hold of you, just as he did for Peter. This is why he came, to end the estrangement, to end the distance between us and God once and for all to face all our fears for us, to bring us out of the darkness and back to God, to be able to say to us now, I am with you always until the very end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are and we thank you for who your son is. We thank you for um, all that he came to do. Um, We ourselves and the world we live in exist in this state of of separation from you, of distance from you, Father, but what he came to do was to end that, to ultimately go to the cross, to to finally uh, take away the distance between us and you so that we could uh, be with you both now and forever. So continue to work in our hearts and to show us yourself as you are, to show us your son as he is, and to, to draw us toward him, Father, as we pray these things in his name. Amen.